0: Well, oh, good morning, and a belated Happy New Year. It's been a couple of weeks since I've been able to join with everyone here for worship, but be assured that Jill and I are both healthy. Contrary to, I guess, the current health things going on, we just had your everyday, ordinary cold. I had a sinus infection, which kept me under the weather for the last two weeks, but I'm now feeling a lot better. I thank you for your prayers as well, your expressions of concern and texts. But as I said, it's good to be with you all and uh, pray that the Lord would continue to uh, bless us with good health, even as we pray for those in our congregation who are still uh, battling COVID and uh, and other ailments. Please, please join me in prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, it is truly good to gather together as your people We are grateful, Father, that we can do this in person. We are also grateful for the use of technology that allows us to fellowship over the Internet. And we do acknowledge your sovereignty and your Lordship. We do confess freely and joyfully that you are a good Father and that whatever we receive from you, Lord God, your Word assures us is a good and perfect gift. So whether we are in health or not, whether we are in grief or in joy, whether we are bored or are flourishing. Father, where we are in life is the direct result of your sovereign leadership and guidance. And so we pray, Father, that as we follow you, in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, we would trust that you are leading us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We trust, O Lord God, that your rod and your staff, indeed are our comfort, as is your Holy Spirit, whom you have given us to lead and to guide and to assure, and to speak words of correction and encouragement. We thank you, Lord God, for the blessing it is of worshiping together. We pray, Father, as a congregation for our nation, that you would continue, Father, to bless our land and, and our leadership. We, Father, we pray for our president and vice president. We pray for the Congress, the Senate, our state government as well. Father, we ask that you would give them wisdom and discernment to make choices and decisions, Lord God, that are for the benefit of all and not just for a select few, a privilege, or a party. We thank you as well, Lord God, that your church is indeed a nonpartisan body, That there is indeed one Lord and Savior. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one God and Father. There is indeed one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Father, on these foundations uh, may your church rest. And with this uh, proclamation in our mouth, may we advance your kingdom. We pray, Lord God, that you would indeed always be our standard bearer. And that we would always have Christ at the forefront of our thoughts and of our service, that you would help us to love you and our neighbor as ourselves. Father, we thank you for this new year and pray that it would indeed be better than the year previous. But if not, we trust, Lord God, in your grace and in your mercy to lead us through with joy and with resolve to trust you no matter what, that in all things we would worship Christ as Lord. We turn now, Father, to your word and ask that you would bless us in the hearing and in the preaching of it, and the application of it as well. For we ask and pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now well, we're going to continue um, the series of Zechariah at uh, starting in February. But I thought since it's the beginning of the new year, I would uh, lead us in a, in a series of messages. It was supposed to start last week, but it, we're going to be shortened by one week, obviously, because of uh, uh, illness But uh, we're going to look at Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we're going to work through the letter sort of back and forth um, on this theme of resolve, and you'll see where we're going in in just a moment. But for today, uh, the passage is going to be from Philippians 3, 1 through 16. Uh, It should be a familiar passage to many of you, especially if you are a consistent reader of God's word. Paul is nearing the end of his letter uh, to this church that he has a very a fond uh, relationship and, and uh, thoughts with. So he writes in uh, verse three, uh, chapter 3, rather, beginning in verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh." But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I was looking through some old sermon files, um, and I came across a a list of resolutions by uh, Jonathan Edwards. If you don't know who Jonathan Edwards is, Google him. Hopefully you will be directed to Jonathan Edwards and not to COVID testing sites, but that's another issue. So in addition, you'll find out if you Google him, you'll find out that in addition to being a pastor... Edwards is a highly respected philosopher and theologian, perhaps, in, in the opinion of many, the, the, the finest philosopher and theologian our nation has ever produced. When uh, he was between the ages of 19 and 20, back in uh, the year 1722 and 23, Edwards wrote down a, a series of 70 resolutions that he read weekly every day for the rest of his life. And the preface in the first of Edward's resolutions revealed that even at that young age, he was a very serious young man. I quote Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly ask Him by His grace to enable me to keep these resolutions, so far as they are agreeable to His will for Christ's sake. One, resolve that I will do whatever I think to be best for God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my lifetime without any consideration of the time i will do whatever i think to be my duty and best for the good and advantage of mankind in general and i will do this whatever difficulties i meet i meet with no matter how many and how great and then there are more that follow from there in that same vein but you don't need 70 Resolutions as motivation to follow Jesus Christ. In fact, according to Paul, you really just need one. And we find that resolution, that one resolution, in the midst of this long discourse in Philippians 3. You'll find it in verse verse 14. That the one resolution that is necessary is simply this. To press on toward the goal for the... Prize of the Upward Call of God in Christ Jesus. And over the next three Sundays, we're going to study how making that resolution to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus is going to help us do at least three things, Lord willing. To live wisely, to live humbly, and to live fearlessly. So if we're looking at living wisely, living humbly, and living fearlessly, starting with the first of those three, that living wisely simply means knowing there is as much benefit in running the race as there is in winning the prize. That living wisely means knowing there is as much value in the struggle as there is in the achievement. That it means it's knowing there is as much merit in the journey as there is in reaching the goal. This is a, an Olympic year, and I, I sort of take that theme in terms of that idea of there's a lot of virtue in the struggle. There's a lot of merit in the, uh, the training that goes into achieving the goal. That a lot of these athletes who will be competing uh, next month have gone through years of training for just a, a few seconds on the course or a few seconds on the ice to prove their merit, to prove their worth, And every one of them, though they may not win a medal, whether it be gold, silver, or bronze, will say there was at least merit in training and disciplining themselves for that one glorious moment when they get to shine and show what they have been practicing and achieving. In the same sense, Paul says there is as much merit, value, and benefit to the struggle, the journey, and the discipline of following and pressing on toward Christ as there is in receiving the ultimate prize, which is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So unpacking, then, what Paul is talking about here, there are at least four things we're going to see that are necessary to live wisely. Inspiration, humility, courage, and discipline. So the inspiration, where does it come from? Where does the inspiration come from to live wisely? Paul tells us that the inspiration to live wisely it comes from knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. Look with, uh, again at verses 8 through 11. This is after Paul has lifted his pedigree as, as a Jew, his uh, achievements, as you will, according to the flesh. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because as a surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish Before he knew Christ, Paul had earned a stellar reputation as a Pharisee. In combination with his zeal for the law, as well as his zealous persecution of Christians and the church in general, Paul's reputation, if not his entire identity, would be defined by his ethnicity, his religious zeal, and his passionate devotion to the law. If you would ask Paul to identify those things that that sort of characterized him, that's what he would point to. That's what he points to in the letter. However, the moment that he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, and you can read about this in Acts 9, the moment he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, en route to persecute Christians in the church, everything in Paul's life changed dramatically. There's a real difference at that moment, we understand, in knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Because before his encounter with Jesus, the only thing Paul knew about him, from his perspective as a zealous Pharisee and persecutor of the church, what he knew about Jesus was this. He was a false prophet who was justly condemned and crucified as a blasphemer. But after He encounters Jesus. After Christ asks him the question, Why are you persecuting me? Suddenly, Paul undergoes a dramatic change and adjustment in his thinking. Because after having seen Jesus, he now comes to know who Jesus is that he is the, the Savior, who is the Son of God, who is the Lord, who is the true Messiah of Israel. That encounter, where Paul goes to knowing about Jesus in one aspect, where he goes to knowing Jesus intimately and personally, realizing that Jesus now knows him, changes how Paul defined himself, changed how Paul identified himself. It changed the, inside, the entire basis, if you will, of his identity. Whereas Paul the Pharisee prized knowing the law, Paul the Apostle prized knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. Paul the Pharisee sought to gain his righteousness by keeping the law. Paul the Apostle now lived in order to gain Christ so that by being found in him, he would have a righteousness that comes not from the law, but from knowing Christ and being known by Christ, That Paul the Pharisee lived to persecute Christians and make them suffer, but Paul the Apostle lived to share in the sufferings of Christ, somehow becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible he might attain to the resurrection of the dead. There's a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. Because once you know him and once you know that he knows you, there is a fundamental change in how you identify yourself and how you, how you define your existence to him as well as to the world. So that's a very simple question. Do you know Jesus or do you just know about him? You, is there a relationship there that exists between you and him and him and you? Or is it something that's at arm's length? Where your relationship is, it looks good on paper, as does Paul's resume. Or is his word written on your heart? The inspiration to live wisely comes from having God's word engraved on our heart by his spirit through knowing who Jesus is. Because before he met Jesus, before Jesus encountered him on that road to Damascus, Paul thought he knew him. Paul thought he knew everything that he needed to know about Jesus. He had come to define Jesus on Paul's terms. On what the law in his mind said who Jesus was. But how when he met Jesus, everything changed. His values, his priorities, his goals. He said, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them, he says, as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now think about that. Think about what Paul is giving up in order to gain Christ. When he chooses at that moment to renounce his background, his upbringing, he is exercising, he is cutting himself off from a community that he has known from childhood. He is saying, I no longer identify as that, but I now identify as being in Christ and what that means, no matter what that means. So he is removing himself from everything that was familiar and known and comfortable and stepping out into something that is tremendously uncomfortable, tremendously unknown, which is why I think at the end of Philippians, he, he again repeatedly he says, Don't be anxious about anything. Because if there's anyone who has reason to be anxious, Paul would say, It's me. I've left everything that was familiar behind. My community, my upbringing. And I've risked it all in order to know who Jesus is. And he said more than that, he says, I count it as Rubbish. Some English translations take that word rubbish. In Greek, the word is skubala. And they'll translate that word as, as dung. And it's quite possible that Paul is, is wanting to be that vulgar. But more, moreover, it's more likely he's intending a, a better translation. Just, it's trash. It's garbage. But here's the point. You know, people who only know about Jesus or, or think they know who Jesus is, they hear what Paul says here. And they, it's too radical. I mean, who, who takes an Ivy League diploma and throws it in the incinerator? Who walks away from a six-figure salary? Who walks away from an ascendancy up the corporate ladder in order to follow a supposedly resurrected carpenter Quasi-preacher who talks about the kingdom that you can't see but knows exists in your heart. Who does that unless that person has been encountered by the very one that he has counted everything all loss for? Paul says, compared to knowing Christ, compared to knowing and experiencing the power of his resurrection, everything I have achieved in life is garbage. And it's only because of the power of Christ's resurrection I can count that as garbage. Think about what Paul says here. He's using all of the education, he's using all of the prestige that he's earned, but now he's using it to pursue something higher, something greater, something more durable. again, give consideration what Paul is talking about. Is salvation based on the school you attended? Is it based on the career you've built? Is it based on the amount of money you have made or are making or will make? Is it based on the reputation that you've earned? Those are all worthwhile things you understand. But in comparison to knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection, Paul would treat them as useless, rubbish, garbage. Remember that while he was on earth and Pastor Eric alluded to this in his actually it was the basis of his sermon on January 2nd, Jesus warned us not to store up treasures on earth, but to focus our attention on storing up treasures in heaven by seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness. That's what Paul is saying here. That in order to seek God and his kingdom, I have to no longer identify as this, but now fully find my identity, my definition, my future, in Christ, in Christ alone. Trusting him for that future. People who know Jesus, in other words, they, you will receive the faith, the will, uh, and the ability that is required to hold loosely to the things of earth. I, I don't mean this as a, as a humble brag, but in terms of just sort of giving up things in terms of prestige, here's my tea. I was a religious studies major in college and I had made application to a couple of seminaries in my, going into my senior year. And one of the seminaries I was encouraged to attend to apply to, is I was a very young Christian, didn't really know anything about the Christian world. So I applied to Yale Divinity School. And I was accepted. And because it's Yale, they just give you a boatload of money. It would have cost very little out of pocket to go to Yale. But I wasn't sure that that's where I should go. And so I deferred my acceptance, much to the embarrassment of my parents. Who says no to Yale? And I went, lived in Brooklyn for a year, attended a non-accredited Bible school. That's where I met Jill. We eventually married. At the end of that year, I made application again to Yale and to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. I was accepted again to Yale. And I was accepted to (coughs) Gordon-Conwell. And through conversation with, at that time, my fiancée, Jill, I made the decision to go to Gordon-Conwell. Who does that? I am not a man of great faith. I mean, relatively speaking, compared to Paul. But it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Coming to know Christ, marrying my wife and going to Gordon-Conwell. Because I came to realize what I would receive at one, I would not receive at the other. There are decisions that you will make in life. The inspiration to make them will come from one of two places. They will either come from God the Holy Spirit who who instills in you this hunger and thirst to pursue Christ with everything you have, forsaking all others and leaving yourself only unto him or you will make that decision based on what is good for you. And you will layer over that decision every kind of reasoning that will seem spiritual but will at the end, at its core, be more directed by what is good for you. Paul is saying, I, once I knew Christ, I gave up making that kind of equation. It was foolish for Paul to walk away from his community. It was absolutely stupid. Stupid of him to do that from the outside, but those who are in that relationship with Jesus know exactly how Paul can make that decision because they understood at that, that moment he was storing up for himself treasure in heaven and not on earth. I don't know if you've ever if you've had that moment. I mean, if you have a career and you're pursuing it and you're making money, well and good. But the inspiration for that pursuit has got to be something more permanent than I'm just going to build a good retirement account, live in a nice place, get a nice car, make sure my kids go to a good school. The inspiration for that has to come from the desire to know Christ and the power of his resurrection because that's how you live wisely and that's how you make wise decisions and choices. So the inspiration comes from knowing Christ, from having a relationship with him, from experiencing the power of his resurrection that makes us born again, and then comes the humility with that as well. Because realizing that you won't be perfect this side of eternity is also a large part of living wisely. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Once he declared his intention to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, Paul then has this audacious humility to confess, (laughs) I haven't really gotten there yet, guys. That despite being an apostle, despite all the things that he has experienced, despite all the success he has had in planting churches and in training men, he confesses that he has not yet attained to that full knowledge of Jesus and the power of his resurrection. I take that as great encouragement. But rather than be discouraged by this, Paul embraces the role of a lifelong learner. I press on, he says. I press on to make it my own. I pursue it the way a hunter pursues his prey. I I. I Pursue it the way a hungry man chases after a meal. Or a jobless person looks for a job. Or a homeless person seeks a home. Or a rootless person seeks roots. Or someone without a family seeks that connection. That desire, that drive, comes not from within him, you understand, but it comes from knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. And he does it, he says, because Christ has made me his own. we sung about it. When you realize the depth of grace and the debt of mercy that we owe to God for having chosen us when he did not have to, that as condemned sinners, he had every right and reason to leave us in our helpless state, but because he is gracious, he stoops down and he raises us up and by the power of Christ and his resurrection gives us new life and he makes us his own. Paul says, that's why I press on. I want to know this God who chose to know me and all of my selfishness, and all of my foolishness, and all of my pride, and all of my lust, and all of my envy, and all of my avarice. That God chose to know me. I want to know Him. And I will never know Him fully and perfectly in this life, but I will keep pressing on to know Him. For Paul, the way of knowing Christ was certainly to experience Him in prayer, to delve into His Word, to have fellowship with His people, that having been saved by grace through faith in Christ, he presses on to know as much about Jesus as anyone can in this life. But here's the thing. And this is where Paul throws us a curveball. Because if you're like me, you read something like pressing on to lay hold of him who has laid hold of me, and I'm immediately thinking, just give me a library in a quiet place with lots of books, an endless supply of coffee and access to the restroom, and I'm good. But Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say, lock me away in a monastery, lock me away in a private room where I can read and pray and no longer have to rub elbows with anyone. No, he says, how I'm going to know Christ, how I'm going to press on is by sharing in his sufferings. And like many disciples who heard Jesus at the end of John 6, when Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me, a lot of people see that and go, that's a bit much. I like the knowing part. I like the pursuing part. But the suffering part, the idea of entering into a knowledge of Christ through suffering, I'm not so sure about that. Now why would Paul say that? He's built us up to this passionate fervor of abandoning all to know Christ, to press on to know him who has made us his own. And then he sort of throws this wrench into it and says, but you're only going to do that by suffering. He says it because he knows that the death and resurrection of Christ transforms suffering into something that is redemptive, not punitive. I think <clears throat> there are a lot of things you can say about the pandemic and the consequences and things, and, and that's a wide open conversation. But I think one of the more disturbing consequences of the pandemic has been that it has, it has created this fear-driven, risk-averse, pain-avoidance culture, that it's, it's fed this culture of fear and of risk-aversion and of pain-avoidance. That we will do anything and try anything in order to avoid suffering. When the Bible treats suffering in a completely different way, the Bible, and this is so counterintuitive to to our Western thinking, for sure. The Bible teaches us to view suffering as an opportunity for deepening our faith. And I think if we went around the room and, and were able to be honest and transparent about how and when we have grown the most and put down the deepest roots, it's been through seasons when we have gone through suffering. Some kind of physical illness or emotional pain some kind of betrayal, some kind of bad thing from the world's standpoint that has happened to us that has driven us to our knees to experience in ways that we can imagine what it means to know Christ in the power of His resurrection. We live in a culture that is trying its best and failing to avoid pain and suffering. When the Bible says the way to grow, and to know who Jesus is, is to embrace it. It's what Paul is talking about in Acts 14, 22. Paul is is in the city of, uh, I think, the city of Lystra. And he is stoned. He is literally stoned to death. And he's dropped for dead on the outskirts of the city. And his disciples go and they pick him up and he somehow miraculously revives. (laughs) And then he says... It is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I'm not advocating getting stoned. I'm not advocating being martyred for the faith. I'm simply saying that if the early disciples understood and viewed suffering as a means of entering into the kingdom of God, it's not something that the Bible or God would have us shrink from or avoid or misinterpret as somehow punishment from him for a bad choice that was made. Because I am sure there were many of Paul's former compatriots who looked at his persecutions and sufferings as a Christian and said, I told you. This is God's judgment on you, Paul, for abandoning the law, for leaving the way of the Pharisee to follow this Nazarene. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have those thoughts. You read Psalm 73, and you look around the world at large, and those who don't know Christ, you know, they don't seem to have any worries. They don't seem to have any cares. Bill Gates doesn't seem to have any issues. Elon Musk seems to be pretty happy. And yet, and yet, life is not found in the abundance of riches. The other thing to realize, too, is that none of us suffers perfectly. But God uses our suffering to make us perfect. And I think that's why suffering teaches us humility, because no matter how much we train and discipline our bodies, we still get sick, we still get old, know how many force-factor pills you take, or dietary supplements and fruits and veggies from that guy that's always trying to sell you those little capsules. You're going to get old. This hair, I tell you, at one time, John Travolta had nothing on this hair. It was down to here. And it was thick. And it was deep, deep brown. My wife can tell you. But now... But if your hope is in Christ, if we're humble enough to acknowledge the fact that whether it's considering everything is garbage in order to gain Christ or experiencing pain of any kind, we have God's assurance that everyone, everyone who presses on to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection will attain to the resurrection of the dead. They will receive the crown of righteousness. It's humility that is required to live wisely. Because it's humility that keeps driving us back to the cross, back to the word, back, 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 and back to fellowship with the Father. And then there is the courage. The courage to forget the past and press on into the future by faith. This is my, my favorite part of what Paul says here and, It may be for you as well, where he says in verse 13 and 14, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Some years ago, a counselor introduced me to a concept, what he called wise forgetting. Wise forgetting he defined it as not allowing the past to shape us, but rather letting the past define us. In other words, wise forgetting remembers that our identity as well as our future are in Christ, not in our past. That wise forgetting remembers that the Lord is our shepherd, that he leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Wise forgetting looks at where we are, And while it may look at the past, it doesn't live there. Looks at the past to learn from it, to allow it to shape us so that the decisions we make are humble and wise and inspired by trust in Christ. Wise forgetting, in other words, means that we are not shackled to our past because we are yoked to Christ. And why he's forgetting is at the, whole, uh, the heart of a quote that I shared with you in my uh, traveler's advisory from last month, the one by Oswald Chambers. And from his uh, entry on December 20, I think the 30th, uh, 31st of the month, uh, in Chambers' uh, devotional, my utmost for his highest, Chambers writes this, Our yesterdays hold broken and irreversible things for us. It is true that we have lost opportunities which will never return but God can transform this destructive anxiety into a constructive thoughtfulness for the future. Let the past sleep, but let it sleep in the bosom of Christ. Leave the broken, irreversible past in his hands and step out into the irresistible future with him. Wise forgetting is choosing not to allow the past To haunt our present or to frustrate our future. It takes courage to allow the past to sleep in the bosom of Christ. It takes courage to leave the broken, irreversible past in His hands. It takes courage to step out into the irresistible future with Him. The future is coming, there's nothing can stop it, not our regret not our attempt to undo the past. It takes courage to stay yoked to Christ rather than shackled to our past. And yet for those of us who trust Jesus for the courage, who are able, with his help, to forget what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, we gain a reward that far exceeds the light and momentary suffering of an irreversible past or a bad decision or a bad event or a bad circumstance. That imagery of straining forward comes right out of the Olympic Games. It describes a runner. You've seen that? Runners straining forward on the 100-meter dash, or even at the end of a 1,500-meter or 10,000-meter race, they approach the finish line, and if it's neck and neck, they strain and they lean forward to be the first to break the tape or to cross the electronic finish line. The image I get of this is that I read an article in in the spring of uh, 2015 during the Men's Steeplechase race at the Pepsi Team Invitational. It was held at the University of Oregon, the University of Oregon's Tanguy Pepiat. There's a name you're going to remember, Tanguy Pepiat. He had the race all locked up with 100 meters to go. He was so convinced he had the race locked up with 100 meters to go, he starts waving to the crowd. Starts egging him on. It's the hometown crowd. I'm your man. Cheer me on. And he's waving. He's waving. What he doesn't see is behind him is another runner named with an equally memorable name, Merin Simon. Merin Simon literally came out of nowhere. And right at the finish line zips by Tangai Pepiat to win the race. Merin Simon's victory is the epitome Of straining forward. Because in the immortal words of Yogi Berra. It ain't over till it's over. So you strain forward with everything that's within you. Everything that the Holy Spirit of God has placed within you. Paul says he presses on. But unlike an Olympic athlete who presses on to win a laurel wreath. Or a gold medal, Paul presses on to win something of far more value, far more permanence. He presses on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Every Olympic medal ceremony, right? They call the names of the athletes who have won medals. And the last name that is called is the person who's won the gold medal. Paul is straining forward in order to hear his voice being called out by God to come up to receive not a laurel, not a medal, but the crown that is righteousness, the weight of glory that is given to every believer who is empowered by the Spirit and faithfully presses on to cross the finish line. He's also pressing on because he knows who's waiting for him at, the, at that finish line. He's running home. And if you forgive me for being sentimental, he's running into the arms of his Saviour who is not only there at the finish line, but is right there running with him. So he's with him in the race. He's at the end of the race. He's running to receive the one word that every believer in Christ longs to hear and is assured they will hear the complete overwhelming soul, captivating, heart-motivating, breathtaking moment. When their eyes lock with Christ and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The driving passion of Paul's life was to hear that, to know it. Why? Because Paul knew the more he knew about Jesus, the more he knew himself. Because to know Christ better is to become like him. You realize that we realize our need for Jesus every time we fail. We experience his grace with every word of absolution and restoration. We sense his power every time we act with the courage and the faith we did not know we have, but it can only have come from him We press on because we have been graced by God with the righteousness of Christ. We have received the promised spirit through whom we may know Christ in the power of his resurrection. And so there you have it, right? So now the last part is the discipline. Practicing a long obedience in the same direction. And we are crossing the finish line. Hang in there with me. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I don't, I don't often play golf, but when I do, I play poorly. And by that I mean inconsistently. I mean, I can hit the ball, whether it's on the tee or, or on the ground. I just can't control where it goes. It doesn't go where I need it to go. It doesn't go where I want it to go. And sometimes duffers like me will take a mulligan, which is, you know, you get another shot at it. But good golfers accept the fact that golf is a game of recovery. And the only way to improve your game, the only way to get better, is to play the shot where the ball lies. Not where you want it to be. I think the same way, the sense in which life is a game of recovery. And mature believers know this. We accept the reality that there are no mulligans in life. You have to play the ball where it lies. The good news is that every time a new year comes around, we have an opportunity to remember, to press on, that even though we are not where we want to be, we are not where we like to be, but we are exactly where God has us. So we can't undo past events. We can't undo 2021. We have to play the ball where it lies. But we can make it our goal to live wisely. We can make it our goal to press on toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We can live wisely by knowing there's as much benefit in running the race as there is in winning the prize. And I'll just end with this. There was a sermon preached over uh, 360 years ago by a Puritan named William Whitaker. And he puts Paul's exhortation in perspective as he places it before his audience. Whitaker ends with this. He says, resolve this great question. Is Christ all to you? And in this, I'm very thankful for Randy's uh, encouragement before our time of confession. Because, as Whitaker con- continues, it is a question of such importance that all your comfort depends on it. Yea, all your hopes is the same mind in you that was in him. Are you holy, humble, and as self-denying as Christ? Have all things passed away? Causes are best known by their effects, trees by their fruits, fountains by their streams, and so our interest is known by in Christ, is known by our conformity to him. Are you prizing him above all your affections? Can you account all as nothing in comparison to him? And so Moses to the treasures in Egypt, if Christ is of low importance in our affections, it is an argument we have no part in him. The affections are the truest pulse of the soul, the most genuine and natural symptom of its frame and temper. Is Christ uppermost in your heart? Do you find your contentment, satisfaction, and all in Him? Do you desire His glory beyond your private advantages? If so, it is an evidence that Christ is all to you. And how well provided for are they who have Him as their portion? And how well provided for are they who forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to lie ahead Press on for the, pro, for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we take it as strong encouragement to prize you above all. We take it as strong exhortation to count all as loss in order that we may know you. We ask, Lord God, for the help of your spirit to know how we might pursue you and press on in ways that we have not yet tried, but know are well rewarded. We ask for your help in this, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.